Hi, this is Mark Lynch, director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the PolMap's Middle East Books podcast, where we talk to authors of books in the field. Uh, joining us today is Jim Crane of the Center for Energy Studies at the Baker Institute at Rice University, author of the new book, Energy Kingdoms, Oil and Political Survival in the Persian Gulf, which was published last year by Columbia University Press. Uh, Jim, uh, welcome to the podcast. Oh, well, thanks for having me, Mark. So, Jim, tell us a little bit about the book. Uh, what's the background of it, and what were you trying to accomplish uh, with Energy Kingdoms? Well, I meant it for, as a, in a couple of uh, to, to 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 fill a couple of holes. Really, there was a um, uh, you know when I was doing my PhD uh, prior to, to to writing this book, I found a, a problem with with a, a political theory, Rontier State theory, that that argued that energy subsidies in the Gulf were rights of citizenship. So I wanted to, to challenge that and argue that that, that, that couldn't be the case because, uh, you know, if, if, if people kept, if, if governments kept subsidizing energy in that part of the world, that um, they'd eventually go bankrupt. Uh, and I also wanted to get into the understudied subject of energy demand uh, in these export countries. I mean, we always looked at that region as a global supplier of energy but nobody ever lifted the hood on their own economies uh, domestically uh, in, in the Gulf and, and looked at just how much energy they use domestically. And, you know, since I, I lived over there for four and a half years in, uh, in you know, in, in Dubai and, you know, as a, working as a journalist for part of that time and, you know, writing a book about it, um, one of the things that really stuck out to me was just how much energy it takes uh, to, to, to keep people uh, comfortable and to keep life moving along uh, in the well, Gulf. And so, so tell us a little bit about that, because, I mean, I was actually uh, really quite struck by some of the detail that you have in there about the sheer magnitude of this energy demand relative to everything else. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, it, it, so energy has been cheap in the Gulf uh, since day one, right? I mean, since... Uh, uh, you know, um, but I, I really kind of peg the um, the low prices back to the the 1973 oil embargo, and we can go into that later. But but people use about you know, you know the average ho- household in the UAE uses you know between four and five times as much energy or as much electricity, let's say, as a household in Arizona, right, where you also have a very hot climate uh, and. Uh, you know, they're energy intensive lifestyles, but, you know, it, it, it just was kind of amazing to me that even Arizona pales in comparison with energy demand in, in, a, in a place like the UAE. Uh, and the UAE is not even the highest. I mean, Kuwait is, uh, is, is just off the charts in the amount of, uh, amount of energy that's, that's used over there. Um, and one of the reasons for that is because it's just so incredibly cheap, right? So Kuwait has been selling electricity since 1966 at two Kuwaiti fills per kilowatt hour. That's less than a U.S. penny. That's, le- that's about 0.7 U.S. cents, right? Where mm-hmm. here in the U.S., it's about 12 cents per kilowatt hour right now. And so that, that price has not changed since 1966, more than 50 years, and is still in force today uh, in, in Kuwait. So when electricity is that cheap, People don't care how much they use. They build a big, inefficient house, uh, you know, and, and they can cool it, and they can leave the windows and doors open if they want, and they can have a, a chilled swimming pool. Uh, and uh, uh, you, can, you know, you're, there's no incentive to 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 moderate your demand. Um, 
even though that the government is, is providing that electricity by burning crude oil and burning heavy fuel oil and sometimes even diesel fuel, really expensive feedstocks for their, for their power generation. So it's costing the government anywhere from you know, 15 to 20 cents per kilowatt hour to provide electricity that they sell for less than a cent. It just seemed crazy to me, and, and, and it was something that hadn't been covered. So yeah. I, I so wanted given, to wait into Given the wealth of these countries and the surpluses of energy and, and oil that, and gas that they have, why is it a problem? Why can't they just keep doing this indefinitely? Well, so, I mean, Qatar could probably could do it indefinitely. I mean, they, they still give electricity away for free to their citizens, and their population is, is pretty small relative to the size of their natural resource base, right? They've just got, you know, 100 plus years of natural gas, and they're never going to, you know, domestic demand is never going to be a problem for that country. But for the other five, it is. It's already gotten to be a problem. Uh, and, you know, if you are consuming your main export commodity in ever greater amounts, uh, you know, at some point, you are, are uh, you know, your, your, your economy is going to be damaged. So, you know, you're seeing, you know, Saudi Arabia now consuming between a quarter and a third of the oil it produces at home, where that, that oil sold for, you know, between five and six dollars a barrel. So it just, um, it, they're, they're cannibalizing their energy export economies. And, you know, and if you're doing that, you're also damaging your political system. I and mean, these are countries that, that use oil rents uh, to, to buy public support. I mean, they're patronage-driven political systems that need those oil profits from overseas to keep these ruling families in power. So not only were these, you know, was, was, was rising energy demand a threat to the economy, but it's a threat to the this, these ruling shakes that govern these, these, these countries. And, and if they couldn't get it under control, uh, you know, at some point they were going to have to, uh, uh, you know, to, 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 to take, you know, to change the way of, you know, the type of governance that they, they had in that region. Well, so now let's, let's follow that track a little bit. Let's connect it back then. So what are the problems you see with Rontier theory then, uh, this idea of the Rontier state that you started off uh, trying to target? Well, I lost you there, Mark. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just asking about how this connects back to the Rontier State theory. Well, so so the Rontier State theory argues that the um, that the, that these governments, uh, you know, basically stay in power through a social contract that has uh, governments, um, you know, uh, uh, providing you know very generous welfare benefits and increasing standards of living for their people. Uh, and they're people accepting these in lieu of political participation. So they, they don't get to, to, to participate uh, in government decision-making, but the government agrees not to charge them any tax and to, uh, you know, to, to distribute, uh, you know, income to them, you know, in this case from oil. Um, and so as part of that bargain, um, you know, one of the key sources of patronage was energy or is energy. I mean, I, I don't, you know. It, it, and it was a, um, in the old early days, it was an easy source uh, of, uh, of patronage for, for these governments that really had very low administrative capacity. I mean, they, they couldn't, they didn't have the data on their citizens to, uh, to be able to differentiate among them, but, you know, they could give them cheap gasoline and diesel fuel and electricity and water. Um, and that was easy for them to do. Uh, and so, uh, 
you know, over the years, academics saw that and said, well, they've been giving these folks free stuff, uh, you know, since the, since the 70s. That means that uh, they've been doing it so long, that means that, that, that citizens expect this and it's now a right of citizenship. And I said, hold on. I mean, this, is, this can't be a right of citizenship like voting in, in, you know, in a democracy. Uh, this is, you know, this is a, uh, it's a convenience. Uh, it's a, um, you know, it's a privilege that they get, but it's a, you know, customary privilege, I think I, is what I use in the book. Um, but it's not a right and it can't be because if it keeps up, these governments won't be in power uh, uh, at some point They'll, because they're undermining their economies and political systems. That and that, and that becomes a real problem when, like, as we are right now, uh, when the price of energy collapses, uh, I think you argue this puts them in some real, in some real political problems. It does, yes. I mean, so right now, uh, you know, we're seeing oil between 20 and 30 bucks, which is, you know, we haven't seen those levels since the uh, early 2000s before the big oil boom, uh, you know, that kicked off in 2003. We had this long oil bust uh, that, that is probably worth revisiting these days. You know, from the mid-1980s until 2003, you had oil prices, you know, in that $20 range, and it ran those regimes ragged. Um, now, at that time, they bent over backwards to protect social spending and to protect mm -hmm. welfare benefits for their citizens, uh, you know, because you know, they, you know, they, they saw this social contract as being pretty important to, uh, uh, to people then. This time around, they're, they're, they're acting a little bit differently. They, they seem to be uh, wanting to protect capital spending more than social spending. And we're seeing uh, some decreases in, in social spending this time around that we didn't see last time. So it, it, it could, could get interesting here. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, but it seems like there's, a, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, there's a big divide between like the super rich countries like UAE and Qatar on the one hand versus the a country like Saudi Arabia. Let's talk about Saudi Arabia a bit and how it's, you know, the current uh, oil price war intersects with its uh, attempts to reform uh, society and politics and the economy. Well, yeah, I mean, it, I, you know, they need oil rents. They need high oil prices to be able to to to, to diversify and reform their their economy. Uh, and you know, full stop. I mean, if 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 they if they've got price under, you know, roughly about eighty dollars, um, that Saudi economy is they're, you know they're starting to move towards austerity uh, and and having to cut spending. And you know, we haven't been at eighty dollars in you know in, in in a few years. So um, uh, so. You know, they're, you know you're, you're seeing Saudi Arabia raise money in other ways, through an IPO or through issuing bonds and borrowing. Uh, and you're going to see a lot more of that, I think, going, going forward. And you're also going to see a lot of austerity. Uh, and this Vision 2030 plan of diversifying the economy, you know, spending big time on creating these new economic sectors that can soak up unemployed Saudis and, mm -hmm. and create, you know, new rent streams for, for the state. Uh, this this is just not going to happen. I mean, you you know you you can't engage in a price war, uh, and 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 you know kind of prepare yourself for twenty or thirty dollar oil, um, uh, and engage in the kind of spending you need to diversify your economy. So I think that that process is going to be put on hold for a while. Well, let's let's take a step back then, because I think it's a really good point you made about uh, revisiting the oil bust years. 
How did the various states in the Gulf uh, respond to that persistent, uh, you know, this decade or more of relatively cheap oil? What did it do to them politically? Well, they, you know, they still had some cash that they, they, they saved and they, they used some of that. And they, they also went out to, to borrow money and they engaged in plenty of deficit spending. And, uh, you know, they had, had built up some, some major debt uh, in these countries. But, um, but they also, you know, they stopped spending, uh, you know, on, on building projects and, uh, you know, stopped hiring so many foreigners to come in and, uh, you know, revamp their uh, societies and their landscapes and, you know, build cities and neighborhoods. Uh, so a lot of that, um, a lot of that overseas, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, FDI dried up uh, at that time. Um, but they, re- they, they really seem to, um, uh, you know, to try and protect their, their ruling family relationship with, with citizens. Uh, it just seemed like there was a lot more outreach. Uh, you know, the populations were much smaller then, so people could legitimately show up at a majlis if you had a problem and ask your, your sheikh for, for help um, or, you know, get, a, um, get an import license for your family for some, you know, obscure brand that, that, that you wanted to import, your family you could import, and then you could, um, you, know, you could have a, uh, you know, a monopoly on, on selling that, uh, that brand inside the, the country. So they used, they used various, and they also did, you know, there's a bit of a re- repression here and there as well. I mean, it's, you know, these are, you know, absolute uh, monarchies and, it, and it, in, in, at certain times, you know, mostly when they're, when the, when funds are flowing, they're, they're more benevolent autocracies, but when they have to get tough, they do. So. So during the like the the height of the Arab Spring, when they were really facing pretty serious challenges of possible mobilization, oil was high. I mean, these these regimes were were flush with money, um, and so now their margin would seem to be quite a bit lower. That's right. Yeah. So I mean, they were lucky during the Arab Spring that oil prices were so high that they could essentially buy off their their publics, and you, you, that's that's really what happened in the GCC countries and. Uh, you know, where Bahrain and Oman needed a little extra cash, uh, you saw that uh, that come in from from their their, their brethren in the GCC. Um, but that that you know, the a, a bit of repression, uh, or maybe you know, varying amounts of repression, depending on which country you're talking about, uh, along with lots of cash, lots of uh, uh, spending on public employment raises, etc. Uh, you know, kept the Arab Spring outside uh, uh, the Gulf, but um, yeah, low, low oil, you know, had, had the oil price been what it is now, uh, you know, you might have seen, uh, you know, it, might, it would have been certainly tougher to keep the, the Arab Spring at bay. Again, there's differences between the different Gulf states. So uh, the UAE is perfectly capable of a $35 billion uh, uh, stimulus program right now. But I wonder how long the others will be. Yeah, I mean, you know... Hard to say. Um, I think you know the, the you know the Saudis have got some uh, some money squirreled away, um, but uh, you know Oman, interestingly, just you know it's, we've got a new ruler after you know Sultan Qaboos uh, you know passed away, and one of the first things that the uh, you know the new Sultan has done is is uh, uh, you know talk about austerity uh, and 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 you know cutting subsidies. So uh, so it's um, you know it's. That, I thought that was pretty interesting and, and was not what I was expecting. I would, you know, usually when a, a new ruler comes in, you see a, uh, uh, you know, a, a flurry of new spending and, and lots of profligacy with, uh, uh, you know, with, with, with the, 
state funds. So, um, you know, as you mentioned, you know, the, the, the rich monarchies are, are, are probably going to be okay. I mean, I guess the other one that's tricky is Bahrain, but I mean, I think, you know, it's become such a police state that, um, uh, that they've just kind of given over to, to full, full on repression and, 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 you know, that, um, you know, doing what they have to, to keep the, uh, mm-hmm. the ruling family in power there. So there's another strand of your book, which I think connects very interestingly with the two we've talked about so far, which is the, the climate change question and how that might be affecting uh, the, the, the bargains and the strategies that these regimes have, have taken with energy. Let's talk through that a little bit. What does it do um, to the, the, the energy kingdoms, as you describe them, uh, when we're looking at, the, at, at, this, um, at climate change barreling down directly on them. Yeah. So, we, so in the book, I kind of describe, you know, that, you know, the, the, you know I sort of argue that the, the, the Gulf regimes got, got a handle on the subsidy problem and they were able to, to sort of, you know, uh, get across to their citizens that actually energy subsidies are no longer a right. And that, um, you know, they successfully at least demonstrated that with, you know, all six countries raising at least some prices on energy, but then, um, you know, uh, just as they were having some success with that, this other, even bigger and more difficult problem came, came you know, arose in the form of climate change. Uh, and climate change is kind of a, it's, it's almost like a lose-lose proposition for these countries because they, um, you know, they, you know, if climate action succeeds, uh, you know, oil demand is going to go down globally. It has to because, we've, you know, we've, we, we can't just keep you know, uh, combusting fossil fuels and, and, and warming the planet. Um, but, uh, uh, but if climate action does not succeed, um, they also lose because they are on the front lines of physical climate change. Uh, you know, their summers are getting hotter uh, and they're approaching temperatures now that, um, that are beyond that, which the human body can, can stand, even, even healthy adults. Um, you know, when we start it's getting not going to make the price of air conditioning go down. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, if you have a power failure, you know, so you can, you can argue that, well, they just, you know, they, they just have to make their, their power systems more robust um, and stay indoors, uh, which is correct. But, uh, you know, you have a power failure, which does happen, or you have a war where power, you know, the power sector is targeted uh, and, you know, people could, could die. I mean, it, it, it could, could, could literally kill you um, to, to, to be living there in the summer uh, at certain times. So, um, you know, I saw this, uh, you know, when I was living in Dubai, we had a, a power failure one, one year in, uh, in May for part of a day, and it got extremely uncomfortable uh, very quickly, uh, and it made people genuinely worried and, you know, question the viability of a city in, in, in such a harsh environment. So when you talk to economists or planners or officials over in these GCC countries, what kind of strategies do they have in mind for for dealing with this combination of energy dependence and the uh, the what the clarity of what's happening with climate change? So for now, I mean, I think they're 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 sort of worried about the climate action uh, and cutting into their economies and, of course, and uh, yeah. yeah. So so they're you know I haven't seen much in public about. You know, they're worried about the, the you know warming uh, temperatures and, and that and that effect yet, um, but uh, you know um, we're seeing Saudi Aramco has been moving really quickly on this actually for, for such a big company, 
so one of the things they're doing is uh, trying to lock up markets where they see growth in, in oil demand in the future. And that is mainly in, in Asia. So mm -hmm. India, uh, China, Indonesia, the Philippines, uh, Pakistan, uh, you know, countries where they see economic growth uh, for the next 10 to 20 years. Um, and so, so Ranco is doing that by buying refineries or building new refineries uh, that they can configure around Saudi grades of crude. So, they get, so they've got guaranteed market share in that part of the world. They're also investing in non-combustion uses for crude oil. Uh, mm -hmm. and that is mainly petrochemicals. So you're seeing Saudi Aramco and some of the other NOCs around the region uh, just going gangbusters for petrochemicals, building big, big petrochemical plants. And that uses oil or natural gas as a feedstock that's converted into plastic, essentially, you know, everything from paint to auto parts. Uh, and the carbon isn't burned, it's locked inside that product. Now, there's plenty of carbon burned at a petrochemical plant to, 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 to create the industrial heat that you need to make plastic, but um, you can run those plants on, on renewable power um, and use oil and gas as a, as a feedstock. So, so they're looking at non-combustion uses for crude. So those are probably the two main things they're doing. Um, Saudi Arabia also, I mean, I think uniquely among the, the Gulf oil producers, is touting the, the really low carbon intensity of Saudi oil. I mean, as it turns out, Saudi crude oil is the closest thing we have to green oil uh, globally right now because they're, it just comes out of the ground practically of its own volition. Um, it, does, it needs very little uh, uh, intervention, very little energy expended to get that oil out of the ground. Um, and it doesn't need huge amounts of processing. So, um, you know, the, 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 the carbon footprint from Saudi oil is as much as 20% less uh, than it is from the average crude oil that's burned in the U.S. Uh, so, um, well, so let, let, let's go from there then um, to one of the other things which uh, runs through the book, which I think might be relevant here, is the, uh, the difference between the oil and the natural gas and how that might play into these choices that, that states are making. What do you mean the differences between oil and natural in, gas? In terms of the way it's uh, the way it's sold, and in terms of like the long-term deals and contracts, and the connections to Asia, but also in terms of environmental impact and that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I you know, it, it's a it's a tricky one to kind of to 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 to, to try and predict how it's going to play out. I mean, you know, oil is much more carbon intense than natural gas, and there's a lot more. Uh, push to um, to try and decarbonize transportation, but mm -hmm. um, but the you know right now oil is the only transportation fuel we have globally. There really isn't any. There's no substitute that's viable yet. You know, you're seeing electric vehicles you know on the margins, but there really isn't. Whereas natural gas is a clean uh, substitute for coal, so you're seeing a lot of demand for gas now uh, to replace coal and, and to reduce the carbon emissions, about half the carbon from, from burning coal for power generation. But the problem for gas is, is that there are lots of substitutes for it that are even cleaner than gas, right? So they're, you know, starting with the with wind and solar. So, so some of the countries that are, you know, that are, uh, and oil companies that are banking on, on natural gas, uh, you know, they're, 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 they're banking on that, that they can, they can continue to replace coal and that they can use it as a feedstock and pet chems. Um, 
you know, and they, they see a longer life for gas, but, but others argue differently that, you know, wait, you know, we've got this massive transportation uh, sector globally that, that, that depends almost 100% on oil and that oil is going to be the fuel that sticks around the longest. So, you know, if you look at airlines, you know, trying to decarbon, you know, trying to, trying to move away from oil in, in, in the airline fleet, I mean, that's, um, that's a long way off. So, well, so there are people let, betting on both sides of that one. Let, let me go from there then to ask one last question then, which is, you know, based on your reading of these various trends and how they come together, do you see any prospect in the near to medium term that uh, the Gulf would lose its centrality strategically, like to the global political economy and to the United States, or that oil and, en- and energy could possibly become less central to the political economies of these countries? Well, yes. I mean, it certainly is possible that, um, and both of those things are possible. I mean, oil could lose its centrality to, uh, you know, the global political economy. I mean, it is uh, to some extent already. I mean, you're seeing oil production around the world, uh, you know, growing more and more diverse, uh, you know, lots of new production and, you know, in, in the Western hemisphere, in, you know, Guyana and Brazil, for example, uh, here in the U.S. Uh, also. So, um, so, you know, the, the, the Persian Gulf is, is becoming ever less, uh, you know, the strategic importance of the Persian Gulf for the global economy is becoming ever less important. Uh, and, you know, every day, uh, you know, people and companies and, and, and countries and you know, governments are working to, to find a solution to decarbonize. So at some point, um, you know, when, when the, you know, half the world is working to, 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 uh, uh, to undermine your main export uh, uh, product that, um, you know, you're going to have to find something else. So, so I think one way or another, uh, the Gulf is going to become less strategically important uh, uh, to, to global commerce uh, and to the U.S. Uh, either way, no matter what happens. Uh, and so I think that's what they're trying, that's what they're bracing for. And you're seeing them react in various ways to trying to, to shore up their strategic importance in one way or another. Um, well, great. We've been speaking to a Jim Crane of the Baker Institute Rice University about his uh, new book, Energy Kingdoms, Oil and Political Survival in the Persian Gulf. Uh, Jim, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, well, thanks for having me, Mark. 